Today we come to part two of the Beatitudes. Uh, We started them last week as we began looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is one sermon that encompasses three chapters. It is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest person who ever lived. And for that reason, I will not be teaching through all of this in one sermon. We're going to take time to take in its majesty. And Jesus starts off with what are called the Beatitudes. That's taken from the Latin word that means blessed. The actual Greek word used here for blessed means blissful, totally contented, or the best translation, oh, how happy, how happy. We also mentioned that the emphasis here is not on the doing, but in the being. These are not the do attitudes. These are the be attitudes. These are to be the attitudes of our lives. It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, A Christian is something before he does something. A Christian is something before he does something. If I'm submitting myself to the Lord, if I'm presenting myself to him as a living sacrifice and, and seeking to live out his word, God begins to change me. He begins to transform me. And in that, I find true happiness. So let's read the Beatitudes again before we jump in to the second half this morning. We covered the first half last week, but we're going to read them all again in Matthew chapter 5, if you would read along with me, beginning in verse 3, where Jesus begins to teach, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what Jesus has to say about what true happiness is. Last time we saw the first four Beatitudes in verses 1 through 6, they focused on internal principles about how we stand before God. The second set of four are still internal principles, but they deal with how we relate to each other how we relate to other people. Think of them as the fruit of their predecessors. If we are poor in spirit, if we mourn over our sinfulness, if we are gentle and meek, and if we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, we will act accordingly in regard to one another. And that's what we see here, beginning in verse 7, where we see there is blessing to the merciful. Verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, understand, when this beatitude addresses those who will show mercy, it speaks to those who have already received mercy from God. It is mercy to be emptied of your pride and to be brought to this place of poverty of spirit, to be poor in spirit. It is mercy, mercy to be brought into mourning over your spiritual condition. It is mercy to receive the grace, the grace of meekness and to become gentle. And it is mercy to be made hungry and thirsty for righteousness. So the person who is expected to show mercy to others is someone who has already received it from God. In fact, you have to start there. 
You can't start in and of yourself. Now, a merciful person will stand out because I think we would all agree that the world is generally a merciless place. Instead of mercy, we want to see retaliation. We want to see revenge. Revenge is is the theme of most of the action-adventure movies that come out of Hollywood. That's what they're all about. They're about revenge and retaliation. And their popularity is indicative of our society, that we're all about that. We love to see that. We want that in, 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 our, in ourselves. It was very indicative also of Jesus' society. The Romans viewed mercy as a weakness. It was not a virtue. They considered that a weakness. A popular Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. It was the supreme sign of weakness. Mercy was a sign that you didn't have what it takes to be a real man and certainly not what it took to be a real Roman to show mercy. That's why the Romans glorified brutality. We see this in the gladiator games. We see this in the execution of so many Christians. The idea of mercy to a Roman soldier would be to whip a person 39 times, 40 minus one. That minus one, that was the mercy. That was their idea of mercy. That's why Jesus was only given 39 lashes, 40 minus 1. Oh, how merciful that was, because they turn around and they crucify him on a cross. So what Jesus says here was relative to his listeners then, as well as as it is for us today. God says that the blessing comes to those who are merciful. But what exactly does he mean by mercy? Understand, mercy, it's beyond sympathy. It's beyond feeling sorry about something or for someone. It's demonstrating it. It it actually means to rescue the hurting. So mercy is not a passive word like, oh, I feel bad about that. But it's it's to, to say that and then not have any tangible action or tangible response to it. This is what James is referring to in James chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. He says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? James says, What good is that? That's not mercy. A good definition of mercy is compassion in action. Compassion in action. Now, some have interpreted what Jesus says as mercy given is mercy received. As if you extend mercy to someone and that they will give it back to you. No, that's what the the Hindus call karma, and that is not what Jesus is saying. When the Bible talks about extending mercy, it's talking about giving compassion in action to someone without any thought of receiving something in return. And you say, well, well, wait a second. I mean, it does say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Yes, the believer does inevitably receive mercy. God is faithful. And Hebrews 11.6 says that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But listen, when we are merciful to the world, there's no guarantee that we will receive that back in kind from that individual or for that situation. Nonetheless, we are to be merciful. And that's where the blessing comes. That's where the joy really comes when you extend God's love and God's mercy to someone without anything in return. It's to say, Lord, I'm doing this for you. I'm extending mercy 
for you. There's a great joy in that. In fact, it is the virtue that God gave us. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes that Jesus saves us, or he saved us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And so because of that, we are to extend mercy to others. This all sounds good, but how? How do we do that? Well, you know what? It shows up in our relationships, how we treat one another, particularly in the way our relationships differ from the patterns of the world. It was uh, John MacArthur said, mercy never holds a grudge, never retaliates, never takes vengeance, never flaunts someone's weakness, never makes something of someone's failure. It never recites a sin. That's hard. So, so mercy withholds the kind of abusive, manipulative, vengeful, and selfish ways people often treat one another. In fact, our relationships should be marked by a consistent pattern of mercy for others' flaws and faults, that so we don't bring them up. So when your neighbor runs over your trash can that you left out, you don't take vengeance. No, you extend mercy. You go... Get your trash can, then you take their trash can and pull it back up to, to the house or whatever it might be. And when, you're, when your spouse forgets to do something that you've constantly reminded them of doing, you don't keep bringing it up. You extend mercy. The one who has received mercy will be merciful. The one who has received forgiveness will be forgiving. And if you're a merciful person, you give evidence of being God's child. You're being Christ-like in those situations. So every time you sin, God forgives. Every time you have a need, he meets it. He takes care of you. He just pours out his mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy in your life because you have received it from a merciful God and you let that work out in your own life, that you're extending mercy. So do you get the flow so far? Remember, these build up on one another. I realize I'm poor in spirit, before God, I mourn over my condition, I become meek, and I start hungering and thirsting for righteousness and become more like Christ. And so I take on those characteristics, and one of the things is he is merciful. There is blessing to the merciful. Next, we see blessing to the pure in heart in verse 8. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, unfortunately, here in the United States and in the Western culture as a whole, we have pitted the heart against the mind. We say things like, it's not about head knowledge, it's about heart knowledge. I've said that myself. And when I say it, I typically what I try to define about that is that, that heart knowledge is, that's like mental knowledge is a mental assent, where you acknowledge something, I can ascend to that and grasp that, where a heart knowledge is experiential knowledge. We know it by experience. But usually what happens is when we talk about the heart versus the head, it's as if to say how, how you feel is more important than what you know. It's all about how you feel. It's not about the mind, it's all about the heart. We hear that said a lot, right? But from the Bible's perspective, the heart is the mind. The heart, is, the heart is not the seat of our, emo, our emotions. According to Scripture, the heart is where you think. 
It's where you develop your thought processes, your motivations. It's the seat of your will. It might include your emotions, but the Bible does not talk about the emotions as coming from the heart. Do you know what part of the human anatomy uh, the Bible describes as our emotions as coming from? Some of you do. The bowels. Yeah, the bowels. The Bible speaks about your emotions as coming from your intestines, your gut. And when you think about it, that makes sense, right? When you receive bad news about a loved one who perhaps was hurt or, or in an accident, maybe you hear of, of a family member who's really sick, and the moment you hear that bad news, you're, you're, it's your gut that kind of knots up, right? It feels like a, a sledgehammer just got hit you in the gut. And, and maybe it affects the way you eat. You, know, you don't feel hungry. I can't eat right now. I'm, just, I'm so emotional about this situation. That's the idea here. In Scripture, the emotions are in the gut, but the heart controls the thought processes, the center of your will. And that's why it says in Proverbs Chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The idea is more clearly defined in Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Thinks in his heart. Jesus himself said in Matthew 15, uh, he'll say later in Matthew 15, verse 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. But it's out of the heart flow our thoughts. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's talking about your thought processes. And notice he doesn't say, blessed are the pure in action, or blessed are the pure in speech, but blessed are the pure in heart. Because if God has your heart, then he has everything else. He'll take care of all of those other things. If, if he begins with the core, the inner you, the outer you will typically follow. Again, back to Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. So watch your thoughts. Think about what you think about. What are you thinking about? Because your thoughts form the blueprints for everything else, what you say and what you do. Now, this word pure is a Greek word that means to cleanse something or to uh, clean something up by removing the dirt. And it means to cleanse regularly, kind of like your laundry. You know, you, you, you get your clothes dirty and you have to wash them. Then you put them on again and they get dirty again and you have to wash them again. You keep cleaning them over and over. And listen, we live in a world where we are bombarded with all kinds of filth every day. It's everywhere around us. It's in our interactions with people at times. It's on the internet. It's on TV. It's, we are surrounded by the filth and the garbage of the world. So in order to have pure hearts, we need to cleanse our hearts on a regular basis because it gets dirty. So how do you do that? Well, it's through prayer. It's through repentance it's through confession before God, like 1 John 1.9 says, to, uh, if we confess our, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we're continually in this routine, this mode of prayer and confession, repentance. And this purity of heart, it speaks of an inward purity before God and utter sincerity before people. 
Inward purity before God and utter sincerity before people. In fact, one Bible commentator put it this way. Happy is the one who can live life out in the open. That's so good. To live authentically, openly, honestly, pure before God, utterly sincere before people. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Now, what does that mean, they shall see God? Well, it would certainly speak of that future aspect of being present uh, with the Lord, because not only will I be present, uh, not only will I be in the presence of the Lord, as uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, I I will see him face to face. I will see the Lord face to face. So it certainly speaks of our future as believers, but it also speaks of now. And you're like, well, what do you mean? Have you seen God? I haven't seen God. No, I don't mean it physically, but I do mean that in the sense that I see God in his word. When I open his word, I I read and I see God there. I see God the way he works in this church, the way he works in people's lives. I see God at work and I say, that what you're talking about, that must be God. That's a God thing. And you know what? That brings true happiness. That brings real joy. This promise for the pure in heart is a greater intimacy with God than we could ever imagine. That's the promise he gives before us. And ultimately, this intimate relationship with God must become our greatest motivation for for purity. Above this, now get this, greater than uh, a fear of getting caught and, or, or the fear of consequence. Because if we're honest, a lot of our, our, quote, righteous living has to do more with our fear of getting caught or fear of consequence. And it, and it is a motivator, no doubt. <laughs> but how much greater is it because of our desire to live righteous before the Lord, to live in purity of heart before the Lord, that that becomes our greatest motivation for purity. That's his desire for us. There is true happiness for the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Number three, blessing to the peacemakers. We see that in verse nine. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, the, now peace, it's one of the dominant subjects of the Bible. You find it from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible opens with peace in the Garden of Eden, and it closes with peace in eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you look back at history, and as you look around the world today, you don't see a lot of peace. That's because as soon as the fall took place, sin took over, Cain murdered his brother, and ever since, man has been at war with himself and even at war with God. It was in 1945 when the United Nations was established with the aim of facilitating international peace and cooperation between states on economic, social, and humanitarian issues. However, since that organization began, there has not been one day of peace in the world. Not one. Somewhere around the world, there has been war since that time. What we like to call peace what, what really it is, it's a truce or a treaty. And those tru- truces and treaties, as you know, they don't last very long. They get broken. It says one person said, peace is that brief, glorious moment when everyone stops to reload. 
And sadly, that's true. So what is Jesus talking about when he talks about being a peacemaker? For you and I as individuals to be peacemakers. First, this is, again, all based on the fact that you have already made peace with God. But that's the, the starting point. Because prior to you giving your life to Christ, you were not at peace with God. Romans 8, 7 says the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's at war with God. And you're thinking, well, I don't remember that. I don't remember before I was a Christian that I was just at war with God. Well, yes, by the way, you lived your life. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that Jesus took all of our sin but it acknowledges we've all gone astray. So there's a time when I'm doing my own thing, I'm living my own life, and then I turn around, I turn to God, and I, as I've turned to him and I surrender my life to him, and when that happens, then peace comes, as Romans 5.1 says. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, I have peace with God, and there's nothing like it. I remember when I prayed to receive Christ. I was 22 years old, and I remember just praying to receive Christ, and just the weight and everything just lifted, and I felt peace like I'd never felt before. It was amazing. And if you don't have peace with God, that's, that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have it, you can have it. You can have it today. If you surrender yourself to him, Surrender your life to him and ask him to be Lord of your life. But when Jesus, what Jesus says here, it's based on the fact that you have already made peace with God personally. Because of that, what does this mean to be a peacemaker? Number one, a peacemaker helps others make peace with God. They help others make peace with God. That's evangelism. That's the ministry of reconciliation, helping other people make peace with God. Mark 16, verses 4. Verse 15 says, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what our faith is all about. Helping others to be at peace with God by sharing the love of God with them. And only those who belong to the maker of peace can be the messengers of peace. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. And this is a great passage where he talks about uh, being a peacemaker, verses, verse five, or excuse me, verse 18 of chapter 5, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconcil reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, in that passage, you get your title. You, you have a ministry title. I don't know if you knew that or not. I know you think, well, well, I'm the pastor, and we have the worship leader and the greeter. You have a title. You are the minister of reconciliation. And that's a cool title. You think of all the titles, I'm a minister of reconciliation. I'm an ambassador for Christ. We can all say that because we all have been given that ministry. 
to be an ambassador for Christ, to be a minister of reconciliation. Now, the word reconcile, it means to keep together. It was actually a medical term that spoke of a bone that was broken but has been reset. It's been realigned or reconciled, put back in place. So our ministry in, the, in this world is to help broken lives get back together with God. I know evangelism can be a big word, a big scary word, and we kind of like, oh, I don't know about that. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not these great evangelists. All he's calling us to do is be those who help broken lives get back together with God, to restore that, and for the very first time to have peace with God. So helping others have peace with God. Number two, a peacemaker makes peace with other people. You become a peacemaker by making sure you are are right with other people. You make peace with other people. Maybe something isn't, isn't right in a relationship you have with a brother or sister in Christ. You do whatever you can to reconcile with people that have offended you or you have offended yourself that you know of. Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, sometimes you can do everything you can do. You can try to make peace with people, but they just won't have it. They're like, I don't want to hear anything else from you. I I don't want to talk about this. And they kind of shut you off. And obviously, it's not getting anywhere, and you, you can't do anything, but at least maybe for now, maybe later you can go back and try to address it. But as much as it depends on you as a believer, do all that you can to be at peace with that person. Put out the effort. Don't be passive. Put out the effort to try to reconcile. So a peacemaker helps others be at peace with God. They make peace with other people. And third, a peacemaker helps people make peace with other people. Helps people make peace with other people. We're talking about being a mediator now, you, where you are the bridge, helping someone who has been offended by somebody and another person, and you get them together and help in the mediation of that relationship. You bring peace between them. So because you have peace with God, you help others to be at peace with God, you make peace with other people, and you help people have peace with other people. There's different ways that we are called to be peacemakers. But that's what it means to be a peacemaker. John Stott, he says, It is the devil who is a troublemaker. It is God who loves reconciliation and who now through his children, as formerly through his only begotten son, God is bent on making peace. That's his heart. That's God's desire. And he wants to do that through us to be peacemakers. And he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He doesn't say they shall become sons of God. They shall be called sons of God. The reward of a peacemaker is that you are recognized as a true child of God when you do this because you share God's passion for peace and reconciliation, the breaking down of walls between people. When you do that, it's a sign. People see that and they notice. That's, that's, that must be, you must be a Christian. That's, that's a God thing. Now, Jesus, Jesus is not saying that this is a means to salvation, He doesn't say, hey, if you live like a peacemaker, then you will be my son or daughter. No, he's saying that if you live like this, people will call you 
the Son of God, people will say, you must be related to God. They will see it and call you that. Now remember, all of these Beatitudes build upon one another. These are progressive. You start out humbly, that you, you are poor in spirit. You mourn over your spiritual condition, asking God to forgive you, or asking him for, for forgiveness. You become meek, surrendering your power to God's control instead of being out of control. Meekness is your power under God's control. Then you start developing a new appetite for spiritual things. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then when you do that, you become like God. You become merciful. Uh, you become pure in heart, living life out in the open, utterly sincere before, before men and before God. And you help people make peace with one another and with God. And when you live that way, people go, you must be a son of God. You must be a daughter of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You will be blessed. There is true happiness in being a reconciler and a mediator, bringing blessing to other people. However, when you do that, not everyone is going to perceive you as being a blessing. Not everyone's going to like that. And that brings us uh, to the, our eighth beatitude, blessing to the persecuted. And really, he, you see the word blessed, blessed twice, so it's kind of a double blessing, all, but all directed to this idea of persecution. Let's read verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you see the word persecuted, verse 10, persecute, verse 11, persecuted, verse 12. It's been said that God examines us through trials Satan examines us through temptation, and the world examines us through persecution. Do you want to know what's going on in, in, in that heart? You know, start poking at it. Start poking around at it. Jesus said, the world will persecute us. Persecution is the inevitable clash between two irreconcilable value systems— we have the value system of the kingdom of God, and we have the value system of this world, and they are diametrically opposed. In fact, you could say that persecution is the natural consequence from living a supernatural life and having a supernatural focus. It's the natural consequence of that. And you do recall, I hope you recall, what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly, in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. That's not a promise we claim very often. We, don't, we like to ignore that verse like it's not in the Bible, but it's a promise. It's a promise of God. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be, not might be, not hey, this is a possibility, I just want you to know this could happen, this might happen. No, you will be persecuted. And here Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. He assumes that you will be, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, not if. 
when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So notice in those verses what Jesus brings into this sphere of what is defined as persecution. Insults and spoken malice, verbal attacks and opposition. So this is verbal persecution. So the definition of persecution is not limited to just the physical opposition and torture, which it does include, obviously, as well. But I think our minds tend to go there first. Like, we're talking about being a martyr for, for Christ, or physical persecution. And certainly, there are places in the world right now today where that does happen. Uh, looking, I was looking at that yesterday. North Korea is the worst place to be a Christian right now. Uh, Afghanistan uh, there's all the, of course, Middle Eastern countries as well, uh, and other communist countries. And there, there is physical persecution that's taking place where Christians are being killed and tortured today. That's not happening here, thankfully. But we still do suffer persecution, as described here, verbal persecution in different ways. If you stand up for Jesus, you might get some smirks. You might get some name-calling, whether it's to your face or behind your back. But more than, that, more than that, you may lose friends. You may lose your job in certain situations. I know of situations where people have lost their spouse because they became a Christian and their spouse didn't want to have anything to do with it. And that happens. Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 26, Woe to you! When all men speak well of you. That's an interesting verse because we like to think, well, what's wrong with that? That you're living such a, a good life that everybody speaks well of you. Well, the implication is that there is likely some kind of, of compromise in your life if absolutely no one around you is offended by you as a Christian or, or, the, or by your words as a Christian or by your actions as a Christian. Unless, I did think of this, here's an exception of why that might happen. That you are living in such a Christian bubble that you don't have any interactions with any non-Christians. That if you, if you live in, in that, you're isolating yourself to where all my friends are Christians, all my interactions are with Christians, I don't deal with non-Christians at all. Again, woe to you, all men when all men speak well of you. You should have interactions with, with non-Christians. You should be interacting in some capacity. We'll talk about that more next time when we get to the, the next passage. But if you are around non-believers, there will be some kind of persecution of some kind. But notice, let's not miss this. We have two qualifying statements. Two qualifying statements here. Persecuted for what? One, for righteousness' sake, and then verse 11, Jesus says, for my name's sake, for my sake. He doesn't say, blessed are the persecuted, period. Because there's no blessing in just being persecuted, because some people are just obnoxious. Some people are just in your face. They're just over the top. They're, they're, they're aggressive. And people go, dude, you're being obnoxious. You're, you're all up in my face. Go away. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to deal with you. And that person might walk away and say, well, I was persecuted for righteousness sake. No, you weren't. You were persecuted just for being weird, for being obnoxious, 
for being in your face. And there's nothing virtuous in just being persecuted or you think you're being persecuted. Here's the questions to ask. Was it for righteousness' sake? Meaning, was it for truth? Or was it for his name's sake? Meaning, is the persecution that you experience because of you or because of Christ in you? Is it because of you and just your personality? Or is it because of Christ in you and what he was doing through you? These are important questions to clarify when it comes to the, the type of persecution we think that we are experiencing. For example, in the workplace. If you know, you're during your lunch break and you're having some time, it's your time, it's lunch break, you can go to your car or go to your office, wherever it might be, read the Bible, you can pray, whatever that might be. But when it's time to work, it's time to work. And if you're still doing your Bible study or you're doing that when you're supposed to be on the clock and then somebody says something about it, sorry, that's not persecution for righteousness' sake. You're to be working at that time. So we have to be careful. We have to make sure we're, we're doing things and doing this the way the Lord would have us to do them. Now, notice what our response is to be when we do experience persecution. As I said, these beatitudes, they build on one another and it builds up to, it builds up to persecution. That's the last one. But even the response here is radical. Jesus says, when you are persecuted, verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Now, I know most people in that kind of situation would not rejoice. That's not our immediate thought. Oh, good. They would not exceeding, be exceedingly glad. We would be bummed, right? I, I mean, you would be disappointed. You, you might even be fearful. You might even want to retaliate. But again, Jesus is calling us to live counter to the culture of this world. And, and this is such a difficult issue Jesus is going to pick it up later, and we'll talk about it much more later down in verse 43 of this same chapter, where he says, if you just look down there briefly at verse 43, he says, you have heard, it, heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that's how most people live. I'll, I'll love the people that I love, and I'll hate my enemies. But verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's radical. That's beyond our natural response. And Jesus says here, rejoice when you're persecuted. Why? He gives us two reasons why we should rejoice. Two reasons. One, there is great reward. For great is your reward in heaven. If you are persecuted because you love Jesus and you're living for Jesus the way it's being described here, and they persecute you for that, you have a reward coming in heaven. You'll have to wait to see what that is. We don't know what that is exactly, but he promises there is reward. And Jesus says it will be great, great reward. So for whatever you deal with in terms of persecution, whatever that looks like in your life, there will be great reward for it. The second reason you should rejoice, not only do you have a great reward, but you are in great company. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And think of the heroes of the faith. Think back to I mean, Noah. Noah was persecuted. 
building a boat for 120 years. I'm like, what are you doing, Noah? This is crazy. You think of Moses, David, Daniel. Daniel and his friends were certainly persecuted. Jeremiah, Nehemiah. Nehemiah had all these uh, people around him giving a lot of verbal attacks, verbal assaults against him, trying to do what God had called him to do in rebuilding the walls uh, there in Jerusalem. Hosea, Habakkuk, John the Baptist, and the disciples themselves would be persecuted. They were all persecuted. So you're in great company, and you have a great reward. And therefore, Jesus says, rejoice. Rejoice. And guys, this is just Jesus' opening statement in his sermon in these three chapters. Jesus is just beginning, but this is an amazing introduction. And Jesus says, here are the keys to true happiness. Oh, how happy are those who have these kingdom characteristics, those who have these attitudes. As Christians, we're to live differently. We are to live counter to the culture of this world. But when we do, there is true happiness, blissful contentedness, and true joy. So rejoice. Rejoice. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.